welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello and welcome to IOM3 Investigates. I'm Andrea Gaini, pronouns he, him, and I'm a staff writer at the Institute's member magazines, Materials World and Clay Technology. As part of our Pride celebrations, today I'm hosting a podcast about LGBTQ networks within the workplace. I'm really pleased to have three wonderful guests who have vast experience building and running LGBTQ groups. Together, we will explore the importance of these networks, how to successfully build a network, and make sure that it caters for all its members. So without any further ado, I am pleased to introduce Dr. Emily Radley, who is the chair of the IM3 Pride Group. Hello, Emily. Hello. Christina Leila Riley, who is the co-founder of the Building Equality Network and the Constructability Network, and is also the director of EDI Construct. Hi, Christina. Hi, good to meet you. And Greg Turner-Spot, who is the Group Inclusion and Diversity Lead at Rolls-Royce. Hello, Greg. Hi, Andrea. So welcome to you all, and thank you so much for joining me. Um, so to kick things off, can I ask each of you to share a little bit about yourself, your background, and maybe tell us about your first experience in an LGBTQ network and what that meant to you? Greg, if you want to go first. Of course. So as you say, I'm Greg Turner-Smart. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm the Group Inclusion and Diversity Lead here at Rolls-Royce. My background is actually in engineering. So although I work in HR now, and that still takes a little bit of getting used to, to admit that, um, my background is engineering. My degrees were in mechanical engineering. And the early part of my career was all around technical roles, engineering focused. I joined Rolls-Royce in 2006. And for the first uh, sort of eight, nine, 10 years, I was in technical roles in engineering but it was in 2015 when, for me, things started to change. And that was when we launched PRISM, which is the Rolls-Royce LGBT Employee Network. And being honest, I didn't really have that on my radar as something I wanted to get involved in. It wasn't something I was looking for. But it sort of stumbled into me by accident. And, and a little bit of word of mouth, um, somebody asked if I'd be interested in getting involved. And all of a sudden, I found myself as chair of the network at the time that it launched. And that was really pivotal in my career. Um, it changed the direction of my career from engineering and technical roles into becoming um, now a full-time diversity and inclusion professional. Launching the network, being involved in a fantastic experience. We'll get into the details as we go through the podcast. But um, if I could say right from the off, if you get the chance to get involved in an employee network, go for it. It is the most fantastic of experiences. Great. Thank you, Greg. Christina, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so my name is Christina Riley. I'm a senior planner at a company called Quinn London. Uh, I work in the construction industry, so I've been working in, in the industry now for about 30 years. 
working all over the country from uh, London to Birmingham and even up into Scotland, mainly working around building projects and, and new builds. So for me, I'm a trans female and I uh, only sort of came out about eight years ago and it was because of the launch of the Balfour BT LGBT network in 2014. And uh, before that, I knew I questioned my gender identity for quite a few years, about 15, 20 years before that. And working within the industry, um, I just didn't really see um, a, a space for me to, to come out as, as trans. And so this uh, created a lot of anxiety for me in the form of panic attacks for probably over 10 years. So uh at a point in time when, when I saw uh, Balfour Beta were launching this network, I just knew I was going to go along and it, it, to the first meeting of the, on the launch. And it literally changed my life overnight. Um, I knew that I was going to go and come out to somebody in the workplace for the first time in my life, which sort of eight, eight years ago was like I, I didn't know anybody else that had done it before. I hadn't even heard of LGBT networks before eight years ago. So, um, you know, it changed my life. It gave me the confidence to to come out, to be authentic, to come out to my colleagues, to my friends, my family, my children, and to then take it forward to, to actually transition fully. So, so yeah, it literally did, you know, it did change my life. Um, my first experience having transitioned was actually a baptism of fire where I ended up going to an event which was run by uh, Outstanding who who do the LGBT executive lists and it was supporting our chair of the Balfour BT LGBT network at the time and it was held at the uh, a bank up in London uh, but sponsored by the Financial Times so my first experience as Christina in the workplace was going to like a, a huge networking event. And uh, it just totally opened my eyes in terms of realizing that people, you know, people like me, LGBT people, trans people can be accepted around senior leaders and people in the workplace. So you know, this is the power of networks. It changes people's lives and uh, it also changes, you know, allies' lives and, and people with LGBT families. And that, that's why um, I'm here today. Thank you so much, Christina. Um, Emily. Hello. So, uh, yeah, I am Dr. Emily Radley and I use any pronouns. Um, I'm also pansexual and non-binary. So my original background is actually in chemistry and materials engineering, although I'm now in project management. So I think the first experience I had of an LGBTQ plus network was actually a student one. Uh, so I was quite lucky in that I grew up in Brighton. And my first university was Sussex, so not that far away. Very inclusive, very accepting environment generally. Um, and, and didn't really have that many connections. Um, but when I moved to Swansea, I very quickly realised that I missed um, I missed having that connection. And so joined the, the student um, LGBT 
plus network um, and then later when I was moving more towards the staff side um, I was a part of the sort of um, the gap between students and staff uh, as they had sort of a bit of a, an interaction between each other so worked on on both sides um, and I, I think it, it gave me a lot more of the knowledge and background about being LGBT plus and the experience that people have um, and it was when um, I start, started sort of realising that when I was in Brighton no one had ever really cared what my gender was um, and it, it basically just hadn't come up for the first sort of 21 years of my life I just hadn't really bothered paying any attention to it but in Swansea I, I was told very specifically what um, things women do and, um, and sort of very quickly realised well it doesn't sound like me. I'm not doing any of these things. So I guess I'll just not be a woman instead. That sounds much easier than trying to make myself fit in with this bizarre set of criteria, um, which seemingly appear, but are fixed in a lot of people's minds. So it, it really helped me understand what I previously didn't really have any names for. Um, and it, it gave me a lot back as well in, in terms of that sort of social and acceptance space, um, sort of reaffirming what I'd already had in general in Brighton, which was really good. And then um, in a couple of the workplaces, um, and including my current one, there have been LGBT plus staff networks that I've joined as well. Um, and I think it, it can be a really, really useful experience. And it's one of the things that made me want to have something similar for IOM3 and so I ended up um, becoming the chair uh, of a newly minted IOM3 Pride which is meant to be the LGBTQ plus member network for IOM3. Great thank you thank you Emily. Work is often where people spend most of their days and do most of their socializing um, and I think we've covered with a little bit of your of each of your stories um, a bit of this but in your opinion, what role do you think within the workplace do you think uh, networks can play in, in developing a safe and welcoming environment for LGBTQ people? For me, I think they play a hugely significant role. As a gay man in engineering, where there's a reputation for it not being as inclusive as perhaps other industries, you know, I never felt entirely comfortable at work. Even when I came out and I got a positive response from my colleagues, I've never encountered any real issues at work. You know, having that network really elevated the support that was available to me to another level. And it really helped the company sh demonstrate its, its actual authenticity and the values that it talks about. So I think for me, it, it gave me that network of people around me who, first of all, were like me. And previously, I'd felt very much like I was the only the only LGBT person in the whole of Rolls-Royce, which was clearly ridiculous with 50,000 employees. But that was how I felt. I felt quite isolated and alone. So having that network, first of all, it brought people like me together. So we created our own little community. And I think with networks, there's a little bit of a, a misconception sometimes that they're just social clubs. But actually, they do so much more than that. And the social element is really important. But it brings people together to give that support, to help with things like uh, career development, to give role models. And it really what it just showcases is that you can be yourself, you can be authentic, you have that support. It removes so much of the fear that you can carry in your baggage into the workplace. 
that allows you to really unleash your full potential and just get so much more out of your career. As you said in the question, we spend most of our time at work, but carrying that extra baggage around really, it's, we just mustn't do that. We need to get rid of that for our mental health, for our, our work performance, for so many reasons. Employee networks really enable all of that. And, and that, that was my experience almost overnight with the launch of a network. It just really created that, that really inclusive culture and took us another step further forward on that journey to create a really, truly inclusive workplace. Emily, Christina, do you want to? Completely agree with what Greg said. I think um, not that you need the validation, but I think that it, it can feel very validating, not so much in terms of that your work appreciates who you are. I, th- I think that that's the recognition and visibility side can be very validating meeting people like yourself especially in as Greg said industries like engineering where it can be a very hidden part of yourself and and previously it has been actively discouraged not to um to to talk about it so it's I think it's it's having that um either role model side or peers that have similarities to you apart from in sort of your day-to-day work that you're doing so I think it's a, a huge hugely important thing for giving you some of that confidence back potentially if you have had negative experiences and I've noticed Greg said that he's generally had a a good time I think part of that as well is that if you're in an organization that is proactive enough to be encouraging and supportive to have a network then it tends to mean that other issues are, are being picked up and resolved as opposed to just sort of ignored and and buried so I think it makes quite a big difference having that having that support there because it also radiates out into what a company delivers overall. Um, so from my side of things I think networks play a huge role in in forming safe spaces uh, for whatever identity you know you belong to within the LGBTQ plus community. Um, for me as a trans person I've really sort of seen the network as a as a place that is like the rock of support for me to fall back onto if I have an issue. So, for example, in construction, you know, it's still an industry where you hear inappropriate language, inappropriate banter. People don't understand, you know, a lot a lot of people don't understand uh, trans identities. Um, but then you've also got, obviously, within the industry, a lot of subcontractors that, that we come across, so people outside of the company we're working with. And so the network uh, serves uh, as a vehicle to, to educate not just uh, senior management, but people throughout the whole company, from people at grassroots level to you know line managers. And I think line managers is a really important uh, thing to pick up on in terms of safety because uh, in my experience line managers need the most education and yet they're mm. the people that you're dealing with every day and and the support hasn't always been there despite having an LGBTQ network I found the network you know a place to fall back to for, for that safety net um, because you you'll usually find and we'll probably talk about this in a bit you know, that you've got senior leadership as sponsors 
and say there's, you know, there's a higher agenda within the business that the network feeds into in terms of safety and culture. So I think it's hugely important. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think, yeah, you've highlighted there, like the importance of the support as well as imparting education in the organization. Uh, I want I wanted to delve into that, you know, the, that role of the LGBTQ networks can have in also um, influencing and keeping an organization accountable. How do you think networks can influence, you know, the organization's policies, the processes, feedback, concerns about the community, and also suggest how these can be improved? Right. I think one of the the first things they do is is that sort of recognition side so an, an increase in visibility because I think if if you don't have that network input potentially you, you're not necessarily hearing the feedback on how it's working which means you can't implement the improvements as easily one of the things that the networks can do as well is strengthen the group consensus and voice so that um, you don't have to rely on on people feeling confident or comfortable enough to go forward with potentially criticism um, or improvement suggestions. It can become a, a collective effort and it, it takes the pressure away as well from an individual person, especially if a, a company's sort of initial approach is, is because it, it's being mandated rather than because they're, they're trying to um, make a, a systemic change it can feel quite daunting um feeding back into those sorts of systems on what's working and what isn't working so i think it also can create visibility of some of the issues and can show where your policy direction needs to be and whether the practice which at the end of the day is is the key thing is actually lining up with what that policy states so um for my side of things i didn't say my introduction but I did actually chair the Belfer BC network I went on to chair the network for three years so um, I did end up having quite a lot of experience and um, when I joined that role um, I felt like there was like nothing you know I didn't know where to start I didn't know who to go to I didn't know what direction we were going in as I said I didn't really know many networks going back seven or eight years ago so um so I had to find my own way, and uh, the way what I found was uh, actually we uh, we joined the Stonewall Workplace uh, Champions Program, and uh, through through that membership, we completed the Equality Index application, and which at the time was like a ten chapter like questionnaire, and part of that was to look at policy and look at concerns within the company and and what the network can achieve and procurement and inclusive culture and so it really gave us you know a bit of an action plan I guess to to okay we want to obviously do better we want to get our benchmark with the Stonewall Quality Index it allowed us to actually go to human resources and go to our senior leaders our sponsors and even the chief executive and say you know look at our policies you know are they using inclusive language you know have you got a trans inclusion policy you know what I think what are your policies around bullying and harassment etc so um we ended up having a huge influence actually and I actually think that 
the LGBT network became the biggest employee resource group, and that actually led to developing other resource groups around disability and ethnicity, and the gender network was already going. But um, it really we sort of shone a light on the value of employee resource groups and how it could actually improve the culture of the business. Wow, that, that's really, really interesting. Um, Greg? Yeah, just to follow up on, on a couple of things that Emily and Christina have said, I think, first of all, there's power in numbers. So if you have a network, you have a collective of people, then you have a louder voice and, and you, you've got more chance of being heard. So I think there's that element that a network can bring in terms of changing policies and, and the way things are. Stormwall, absolutely, that has been a huge help to us being a member of Stormwall. It's, I can't state how big a piece of work it is to actually go through that benchmarking process. You're auditing every aspect of your business for LGBT inclusion, but it does give you that action plan that Christina mentioned, and it, it helps you identify and demonstrate to leaders, these are the gaps that we have, these are the improvements we could make. A lot of it doesn't actually cost money most of it are quick changes just to tweak to a policy and you've suddenly made this big improvement so I absolutely agree with what what she said there i think the other element that hasn't been touched on so much is finding yourself an ally who is a senior leader within the business and we were quite lucky to very early on get a senior leader who is a big authentic ally to the lgbt community and having him in there at a higher level in the business where he can use his influence, that was incredibly helpful to us. And to this day, he, he continues to support the work that we're doing. I think that's really important because we actually used him to help educate our leaders at the top of the business so they could understand why this was important. And then once you got them on board, then it leads to other people following in their footsteps and it makes it much, much easier when you come to deliver change. I think at that level, there's a tendency for some people to, and I'm generalizing terribly here, there's a tendency for some people to maybe think about the business case first, to think with their head rather than with the heart. A lot of what we've tried to do is, is actually demonstrate that this is important for everyone, including the business as well as the employees. And there are huge benefit businesses, uh, business benefits rather, to having inclusive cultures. And you know, if you can use your network to steer our policies, our processes in the right direction, then everyone will benefit from that. And that's you know really, really important. So find yourself an ally at senior levels within the business and make sure you use their influence. Thank you so much. That was a really nice way to sort of establish the importance of ne uh, network groups. Um, now I want to delve into, you know, the actual building of a network. So what do you think are the first steps that one should take, in, in, you know, in the building of these groups within an organisation? For, for me, like Greg already mentioned, is, you know, first of all, you need to find an ally, whether probably start with an ally in HR, to be honest with you. But then, you know, you do need that senior leader, leader sponsor of the network that can actually be a voice at, at board level um, and also can make decisions and, and also get budget towards what you do over a year. And then, uh, you know, we... Uh, set up a committee with co-chair with three co-chairs because we're national so it's someone in scotland uh, manchester and down in london and uh, and had a broader committee and we advertised it out and then uh, we kicked off with a, a communications plan so something that was integral to the network that i was running was we had weekly meetings with the comms team uh, bearing in mind we're like the biggest 
as at Balfour Beatty, so we're the biggest uh, construction company in the UK. We had a we had access to comms up and down the country and central comms as well, and uh, we put together a really good communication strategy across like the intranet. Um, across, uh, you know, a poster campaign that went out on all building sites, uh, communication through the website, um, and then with events. So that was like really essential to to like driving it forward, getting the agenda forward, getting the, the network known, and and recruiting more LGBTQ people into the network and allies. Um, Emily, Greg, whoever wants to add to that. I- I think I absolutely agree with what Christina said. Uh, we've had some very similar experiences in, in our networks. I think from the very start, though, I actually think the support needs to be from the, the top and from the bottom in the organization. It needs to come from both directions. You need to have the senior leadership saying, this is an important part of our strategy. It's a part of our vision. It's part of our values. We support having networks and, and making sure that everybody knows that this is a core part of our business. But you need that that support coming up from the bottom as well, the grassroots support, because you need everybody to get involved. And often for a network, you need those lower level, more junior employees who can get involved, use their passion, their energy to help drive some of that momentum, build that momentum around the network. So it, it has to come from both directions um, for me. You need to find as well that those one or two really passionate volunteers that can be really difficult to do to find those people, but you need somebody or a couple of people who've got the energy and the passion who want to make this work and who will drive it forward. Sadly, the case is often, you know, this is side of the, the desk stuff. It's work that you do on top of a day job. And if you don't have that that energy and the commitment to drive it forward, it's going to be much more of a challenge. So I think finding those people early, get them involved but then put the support around them, make sure they've got any training um, or development needs identified so that we can help them become a good leader of the network and um, you know, really give them that support from a sponsor, from the senior allies, just to enable them to be successful. What we don't want to do is put somebody in the hot seat and then just watch them fail because they've not got that support. So make sure they've got that support. And then once you've got something established, you can start to grow the numbers and form that committee. Yeah, I would echo what Christina and Greg have said. I think the other thing I would add to it is, as Greg has alluded to there, you can have quite small groups at the start of people who are actually doing the core of the activity. And what that means is you don't want people to burn out. And one of the things that I think is really critical to understand alongside who your base is, who you are trying to target, so it's specifically for LGBTQ+, is it an allies network as well? Is it just LGBTQ+, Mm. and then it's understanding the scope of your activities and the range. So what are you planning to deliver? What isn't something that you have the capability to achieve immediately? It doesn't mean it's never going to happen, but I think one of the reasons why a lot of networks, not specifically LGBTQ+, here, but any network can fail, is that the vision doesn't match the reality. And it is a hard truth of life that you need to understand what your capability is and what your group's capability is for your own mental health and well-being um, so that your effort is being is going to continue on 
and so as well that you're investing an amount in that is then maintainable and sustainable for a longer period of time because the worst thing you want to happen is that if it's all pinned on one person when they walk away it all collapses so I think that's one of the other things as well is is getting that spread quite quickly and as, as Greg was saying that support side and the communication as well because the way that you can get that support as Christina was saying is through that communication plan and that dissemination so that more and more people are, are learning about the network and then you're getting more and more contributors you're getting more support and then potentially those things that were limited from your original scope then become possible as the time increases but I, I think it's really important to have some very specific goals and ideas in mind when you start out so that you know what you are trying to achieve and it's a realistic goal as well rather than sort of to get equity immediately because we'd all love that but it's not necessarily going to be an achievable start point as Greg said you need that enthusiasm but you also have to have that realistic mindset so that you don't burn out and and end up having your efforts wasted. Pick up on something Emily was saying that I was really conscious about succession with chair co-chairs. And mm-hmm. so uh, because people do leave companies, particularly in the construction industry, people tend to stay at an, a, a building company for two or three years and then we move on. So it's really important to make sure we had a flow of, uh, you know, co-chairs uh, change over every two years, making sure that people that came in Greg talks about you know people that are passionate and embracing that and and making sure their support is and that's really at the end you know for networks to survive you need to keep that succession going and and that investment in in you know the running of the network yeah definitely and I think uh, you know you know you're really highlighted how important it is to find that you know, a central core group of commissioned and, and passionate people that can help expand. And, I, you know, the step on is like reaching out further and expanding that membership base. What what do you think are some of the ways to, to do that? I think it's critical just to, to follow up on a point that Emily made. You know, are you going to include allies in your network or not? First of all, for us, we always did. And, and we continue to do so. And I think it's really critical that allies are included. So I think in terms of reaching out, you need to reach out to everybody. And I think the messaging needs to be fully inclusive and, and absolutely clear that everybody is welcome in the network to, to help grow that network. We have hundreds of network members who are allies. And without them, we wouldn't be making the, the positive changes that we're seeing now. I also think any event that you do should be as much as possible should be open to everyone. So as soon as you put a sign on the door saying, you know, certain groups are not welcome, which obviously we wouldn't phrase it that way, but that's the message that comes out. If you have an event, that's only for certain people. We do have safe spaces and clearly they are for certain groups only, but generally every other event we've ever done has been for absolutely everyone. And we want everyone to participate fully. So I think having that kind of mindset up front helps because you then naturally or promoting your events at everybody in the business. You're not excluding anyone. And I mean, from a practical perspective, use every comms channel that you have available to you. Talk to your communications team, see if you can get support to get things on your intranet 
um, get some help uh, to have a, a, a newsletter from your network, you know, monthly newsletter advertising what you're up to. With that, make it as professional as you can. Make it look like company communications. I see so many net, network newsletters where it's just a PDF something which is then shared with their members. What we um, fairly quickly established was a template for our emails from group communications within Rolls-Royce so that we have that template. And when we send our newsletter, it looks like it's a communication from the business. And that gives it that credibility, but it also gives it, it reemphasizes the message that this is important to the company. It's not something on the side that we won't put our logo against. It's there as a, a professional piece of work, a professional team doing really important work. So I think that's really, really important. Use every channel you've got and, and make it professional when you do so. Um, we're talking in terms of growth of uh, networks. I think, you know, absolutely allies. Uh, I think also working with other networks and collaborating. Uh, certainly when I was at Belfer BT, we joined up with Rolls-Royce a couple of times, which is fantastic, supporting each other and doing some cross, uh, you know, communication events around, around what we, would, we were each doing. Um, and then attending Pride, you know, we Pride was uh, a huge, well, it still is a huge thing. And uh, there's Pride's obviously up and down the country and uh, making sure you support not just, say, Central London or Pride in London, but, you know, your LGBTQ members up and down the country or whatever regions you're working in and, uh, and making sure they feel empowered and they can actually run like regional uh, network events and that will re- really help to grow the momentum and the membership of uh, the network. I, um, I might be showing my project management add-on at this point but I think something Christina said earlier is is really critical planning. If you want to, to have that successful side um, and, and you want it to be quick, planning out your communication having that structured approach so you are able to identify who and where you're contacting, what's working, what's not working. It's huge, huge impact in terms of being able to fine-tune what's effective and what isn't effective and reaching out to people. And it, it also it can go a long way to making people feel more welcome if you work for an organisation that's never talking about LGBTQ plus issues or LGBTQ plus people, or it doesn't seem like they are, it can feel much harder to come out. Or if you're an ally, that if there's any worth or, or point in supporting people, whereas if that's something that's being discussed regularly, if you're seeing that communication frequently, it can increase the conversations that, can, that are happening it can make you feel more comfortable going to that kind of event and and potentially putting yourself in that position where perhaps you haven't been out at work before, but you're starting to feel more comfortable and able to be yourself at work. And and so I think the communication is, and the planning of it is a huge aspect in terms of getting that reach. And I think it's not sticking with the routine emails, there are lots of ways that you can communicate with people and staff. And if you are in a larger organisation, using your comms team is a fantastic way to get that reach into, into all of the different channels of communication. If you're in a, a smaller workplace within a smaller 
organization then potentially you know something as simple as sort of putting your flyers up and and having that sort of lunchtime conversation it can it just opens up the the consideration that people have of lgbtq plus as a topic and that idea that you're allowed to be your full self at work and, and that that's beneficial is something that can quickly become a, a topic of conversation that then can make it a lot easier to, to add people into that network and get people engaging and interested. One of the things that we found that accelerated the growth in our network was we changed our strategy after a couple of years as, as a network to move it away from being just internally focused and to start looking at our customers and suppliers and partners across the sector to see what they were doing. And what, what we actually did was we, we tried to make our events, in other people's minds at least, business relevant. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, if you said you want to come along to this LGBTQ plus event, they wouldn't have any interest in it. And, and, you know, unless they had a vested interested interest in that, they wouldn't come along. So what we did was we actually we, we dangled a bit of a carrot by saying we're going to invite customers along. You're going to get to hear from our customers or our suppliers, or some quite impressive organizations across the engineering sector who are also doing this. And suddenly, people who wouldn't normally come to our events are suddenly turning up. You know, if we have a big airline customer coming in to talk about some of the work they're doing, suddenly all of our aero engineers are knocking on the door. They want to get involved. They want to meet the customer, hear from the customer. And we've had some really, really successful events where we've enticed an audience in who wouldn't normally come because we've made it specifically business relevant that the inclusion aspect was almost an aside but by getting them in to talk about what other companies are doing it then allows us to certainly give them our message as well make them aware of our network get them signed up give them a pin badge and just gradually get them a little bit more involved so i think if if you want to grow and it's perhaps when the network is a little bit more mature starting to engage with your customers and others across the sector is a really good way to do that. It just interests people who might not otherwise want to come along. Andrea, I think that's a really important point, Greg. And I think one of the consistent messages of EDI is that we are a combination of networks. We're not competing. If someone else is doing something that is useful as an EDI network for yourselves, then collaboration and working together is far more effective than competing and you don't want to be in that like combative environment it's it's much much more effective working with each other on something that is really positive and common within the EDI and LGBTQ plus networks that exist they're very very supportive so if you are aware of other networks as well then like as not, they will be interested in helping you out or doing collaborative events with you. If you could talk to me about how do you think employers can support these groups in their setting up phase? What do you think employers should be offering and, and what kind of support they should be offering to, the, to these groups? I think we, um, you know, you need, we've said we need a budget. You know, things do cost money to, to run events. So, uh, always trying to, you know, try to get a budget that enables you to 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 do bigger campaigns, to have banners, and to um, some networks invite uh, 
pay guests to come in and speak, sometimes some, some quite well-known people, which is uh, quite good. One thing I, I liked uh, at Balfabetia, one thing we pushed for was to have information about the networks in recruitment packs. So when you do your, your onboarding and you join up on your first day, within your welcome pack is a whole batch of information about all the employee resource groups. And, uh, you know, one thing for me, you know, I wish that existed when I joined probably all my companies that I've worked for. And, um, you know, I think it can make a big difference to, to the grassroots and also apprentices and graduates and, and new, you know, new starters uh, at whatever level they're at. Oh, absolutely. I think, as, as you said, funding is really important and that it's just one piece of the puzzle. Money gets a lot done, but so do your staff and the people that are within your organisation. And there's, there's a growing sort of um, perception that some companies are just sort of trying to throw a bit of money at it and hope it will go away or get done recognition of the time and effort that it takes doing these things Mm -hmm. especially when you're doing it on top of your full time or part-time and other aspect workload is incredibly draining and the thing is is if you're you know if you are involved in EDI activities you very rarely have just one They, they seem to seem to be like snowballs you get one and then two and then you're on 16 by the end of the year and you're not entirely sure what social life is so as a company giving the time and training or teaching managers why it's an important part of the company ethos to give time for those things is really really important and actually again it, it contributes to that mental health and well-being side if people are doing more than one person's worth of work, especially if a large portion of it is unrecognised and, and sometimes unacknowledged, then it can become quite frustrating and draining and you, you end up in a position where you can't do what you've been asked to do in the first place or what you set out to do. And one of the biggest things that organisations can do is understand and recognise preferably with reduced workload or allocation on how much time that takes and also of the contribution it's giving to the business so that it isn't viewed as sort of a, 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 a fun evening activity or something you do sort of ad hoc on top because actually recognising that it takes a lot of time is really important. And the thing is, is I think far more people would have time to do it if they knew that they were going to get a little chunk out of their day to be able to do it and not be sort of feeling that sort of under-resourced feeling that is quite common within EDI at the moment. Uh, that's really important in itself that at times I wasn't fully supported from, from management, even though I was supported from HR and, and senior sponsorship level. So, um, you know, you can feel quite drained and exhausted and it takes so much work being a co-chair uh running these things and if that little time slot once a week couple of hours a week or more if possible um you know can make a big difference and the benefits to the to the company are huge you know it helps with recruitment and retention and culture and and place performance so it's it's a no-brainer really 
I'd add, as well as the recognition, I think reward is important. And that's becoming increasingly rec- recognized as well. So if you know somebody is formally involved in an employee network, then have it on their objectives at the start of the year, monitor their performance, and then recognize them at the end of the year in their, their appraisals. And that can mean it contributes towards future pay rises, future bonus payments, if they're doing a good job. We shouldn't just tap into these passionate volunteers and then just get the most out of them that we can without giving them that recognition and the reward as well. I think that's really important. The other thing I'd add to this list, which I don't think has been covered already, is the the leadership and the allyship at the top of the business. So being visible is really important as a company. This is what we need our leaders to do is to, to shout the message out, to be vocal, visible, come along to pride events, be there behind the banner and, and really get involved. And I think nothing actually demonstrates support more than the actions that our leaders take and actually being there, getting involved rather than just talking the talk. Finally, I want to touch upon something more about the, you know, the community itself, you know, being part of the LGBT community can mean a lot of things and the community itself has had to evolve and deepen the understanding of its own members. What can member networks do to make sure they are representing and supporting supporting the whole of the community? I think one, one thing uh, I made sure doing was uh, running events for, for different strands. So, you know, we hosted a uh, Biovisibility Day event down at the Thames Barrier, which was felt at the time sort of groundbreaking because I'd just never seen a, a bisexual visible uh, event within the construction industry. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, making sure you do look at all the strands and, and run events, you know, but obviously include allies from the rest of the community uh as well, you know, and look at also intersectionality with the other networks is, is hugely important too. I think that's a, a really good exercise. I, I think one of the things that my current workplace does um, works really well and, and gives that visibility as well is that they have sort of like member representatives amongst the network. So, for instance, there's a, a bi rep, there's a, a gay man's rep there's a lesbian rep there's a um asexual rep etc so it, it gives a, a point of contact within the network who potentially will have uh, uh, that sort of personal experience um if, if there is a specific issue or, or thing that you just want to talk about you know it gives that visibility as well that you know it, it's not sort of all of you you more um developed LGBT plus categories so it it can I think it helps people feel more welcomed and that actually it is a space for them as well I think one of the other things is that they um, do some sort of training that's available to anyone and you can just sort of hop on and they have two different ones so they've got sort of um, the sexuality side and it is basically going through what that sort of attraction aspect is and then the gender identity side and and what the sort of different terms and and gender aspects can be so it really helps give people a bit of that basic background in terms of informing your allies what it's about but also I think sometimes it can be really useful if you are an LGBT plus person but potentially haven't 
being exposed to people who aren't within your particular little group um or you know if you're one of those people who's sort of aware of, of their sexuality side or their gender identity side but potentially hasn't really experienced the, the flip side of protected characteristic land so it's really useful I think having that that crossover and and yeah sometimes education really is just the best answer telling telling lots of people about it and and having those open conversations it can make people far more aware um I think one of the other things that you have to have is an abundance of patience because especially when you've got a mixed background mixed age group you're going to get people that don't know all the right words I I don't even know all the right words I feel like they change every 10 minutes I'm quite dyslexic have ADHD and I have a brain that is a sieve so I'll constantly lose the correct terminology um, and it's one of those things that if I can't remember half of the words there are going to be people out there that didn't even know them in the first place so patience I think is one of the things you you have to sadly have in abundance. I think just building on one of the points that Emily made for us we thought it was really important to ensure we had a diverse committee and Obviously, yes, trying to cover as many of the different LGBTQ plus strands as we could, um, absolutely vital, but also looking at it from different perspectives. So we wanted to have an ally on board, first of all, so that we had that perspective. We wanted to have somebody who was a little bit older, so we didn't just want younger employees, so to make sure we'd have that age range covered, good gender balance and a good mix of genders within the, the committee. And also for, for us, we wanted to make sure that we had people from the shop floor manufacturing environments on the committee as well. It's much, much easier for those who work in offices to get involved in this kind of activity. But by doing that, you have then a tendency to focus your, your efforts on those in the office spaces and doing events in the offices whilst forgetting about the shop floors. So that was something that we were very conscious of to make sure that we didn't exclude that population. And the second thing I would suggest is um, creating safe spaces so that the more underrepresented or more marginalised groups within the LGBTQ plus community have somewhere safe to turn to within the company, not just the network, but actually a network within the network. So, for example, we have a trans safe space. It is run by our trans officer on the, on the committee, and she runs a monthly session where it's only available to trans employees. They can come along, share their thoughts, their fears, their suggestions, offer one another support, you know, share experiences, whatever it might be. But that's a really safe space that's only accessible to trans people in the company. And then the trans officer, she will use that to inform the committee of what our trans people are saying and what they, they think, what they need, what they want, so that we can truly represent them. We do the same for bi employees as well. And we're looking at potentially growing and to have other safe spaces for other groups within the community too. But that's proved to be really, really useful as a safe place for people to talk share ideas without judgment and then to have their voices represented back into the committee so we can factor that into our objectives brilliant thank you so much christina greg emily for joining me today in this wonderful discussion and you know giving your insights um it's been a real pleasure uh, and thank you for listening to everyone and goodbye thanks so much bye bye thank you Thanks, everyone.
information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.